Hello, I'm Anna Bruni Sampani. Um, I started off as a civil engineer specializing in flood risk and water resource management. I was consulting uh, in many countries around the world for governments, for private sector organizations. Um, and I made a shift a few years ago to entrepreneurship, and I decided to focus on the nonprofit uh, sector where I consult for nonprofits. And I focus on helping organizations communicate their impact compellingly, excitingly, so that they can get more funders, more stakeholders on board. And in that process, I also work on helping uh, nonprofits work on their fundraising and shift it to focus more on the relationship side of fundraising, again, to foster more collaboration and to get the money flowing towards innovation and grassroots action. Um, over the years, I've, I've engaged in a number of different training and mentorship programs from MIT to Bristol University. I also worked a little bit with uh, the Global Alliance for Urban Crises. Um, I attended a bunch of different conferences, such as the World Urban Forum. I'm generally passionate about development, systems thinking, and leadership and improvement. Terrific. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. I have watched so many of your posts and you're obviously extremely passionate about what you do. Now, you worked as an engineer all the way up until 2018, I think, right? Yeah. And um, then you suddenly stopped and you transitioned into uh, your current pursuit, which is focused, as you said, on coaching executive directors um, and nonprofit organizations. Now. You were not an unsuccessful engineer. You were quite successful, actually. And you worked for Bureau Hapold as well as a, a different office. I don't remember the name of the company. Um, and these are major engineering firms. You received several awards, et cetera, and uh, participated in many important projects. So I'm curious as to what prompted you to change directions in your career. Brilliant question. Um, so I think it, was, it wasn't a an in, sort of a one day to the next decision. It sort of brewed, I think, over time. Uh, I, chose to, I chose to work in engineering because I, I liked problem solving and I liked people skills uh, and I liked to deal with complexity. So problems that had many, many disciplines involved in them. So that's why I chose engineering. And when I went into the sector for many years, um, I felt fulfilled. By the projects I was working in. So I was, I was very happy at Bureau Hubble. Uh, I was traveling, I was meeting all these different architects, all these different clients. I was learning about sustainability, about water. Um, so I think for many years I was very happy. But then I reached the stage where I realized that in a lot of the projects I was working on, uh, bearing in mind these ranged from um, a watershed management plans for whole states to um, designing a new river for a city um, and everything in between. I, I started realizing that my disciplines and the, the parts of the work that I was most excited about, like saving people from flooding or providing water to people, weren't really at the heart of the projects that I was working on. And so I realized that they were sort of a side issue. And I kept on trying to find clients that were interested only in the parts of the project that I was interested in. And there was a disconnect. So I think it's when I realized there was a disconnect between the clients I was working with and their priorities. 
and what I was interested in. That sort of pushed me to look beyond. And initially, I just looked beyond the private sector in engineering. So I shifted from Bureau Happold to Capita because I specifically wanted to work in the public sector. I worked with the Environment Agency. Because again, I wanted to understand where do I find money that matches the impact goals that I'm interested in, which at the time were flooding. So I became somewhat of an expert in uh, flood defense grant and aid, which is a funding pot in the Environment Agency government. Um, and again, I learned a lot there about how to align funding and purpose, but I felt like it wasn't enough. And I think the the as they say in Italian, the drop that makes the the, the base tip was when I was appointed trustee of the Happold Foundation, I did a piece of research where I found out that 99.6% of all international funding, philanthropy, is managed by national or international local organizations, which means that a lot of the funding decisions are not made by the people closest to the problem. And mm -hmm. so I think that's what really triggered me and set me off on my journey to entrepreneurship. Do you feel that it's necessary for decision making to be for decisions to be made by people who are very close to the problem? Does uh, distance add some value to decision making? Really interesting question. I think I think it's not black or white. So I think there's obviously decisions that need to be made at every level because there's there's changes that need to happen at the policy level where, for example, governments and intergovernment organizations are really important. Uh, there's decisions that need to be made at the national level, at the city level, at the neighborhood level, and then eventually at the sort of individual level. So I think for, for change to happen in any given space or sector, you sort of want uh, all those decision makers to do their part. I think the challenge with philanthropy is that um, a lot of philanthropy is talking about recently I'm sure you've heard, but everybody wants to create innovation. Everybody wants to create solutions that are new, that solve the problem and that scale. Mm -hmm. And there's a problem, there's a challenge around this, achieving this scale, I think. Because to it, if, you're, if you're talking millions and billions, you can't, as an organization managing millions and billions, be dealing in little tiny projects that are worth thousands. But if the organizations that are creating the innovations are working at that scale, how do, you, how do you bridge that gap? How do you stitch together? And how do you create funding mechanisms that aggregate little projects and package them up into bigger ones? So I think in answer to your question, I think the distance does create a problem. And it creates a problem because it makes it hard for the information, information relating to what are the problems, who is facing them, what are the priorities, what needs to change. That information, the bigger the distance, the longer it has to travel and the more chances are that it's going to get distorted. And so I think in a lot of cases, funding is allocated to big programs that have a good intent, but then when it trickles down and it comes to how does that funding intent represent itself at the small project program level, it, 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 it manifests itself in boxes, in prepackaged funding rules that don't really serve innovation at the smaller scale. I see. Does that answer uh, your question? Uh, yes. Um, I want to talk about a field that I'm kind of familiar with. So that's affordable housing. So 
uh, obviously we're talking about funding that comes from their from the federal government for affordable housing, tripling down to states, smaller communities, et cetera. What other models um, uh, have you encountered in your career for, for different types of projects? Um, okay, so in terms of the models, I mean, the, the types of funding that I, that I have experience with are, and these like, are like funding streams. Um, you've got um, sort of crowdfunding, so that's just sort of general individuals, you and me, our brothers or sisters, whoever, just mm -hmm. contributing to a project on a funding campaign. That's one way. That's lots of people uh, buying into a cause individually. It's short term, it's fast, it's not regular. Then you have uh, grants funding, uh, and that can be from like a trust or a small charity, like say Apple Foundation that I was working with. Um, they have their own rules. They're a bit more flexible and innovative uh, in the sense that they're organic organizations that don't have too much bureaucracy. So they can flex and decide. Um, and they would set a bunch of rules of what are our priorities as a small organization? What do we want to give the funding to? We, for example, at the Hapult Foundation had a set of criteria that we would use to decide who to allocate um, funding to. We would use those and we would evaluate projects. That's sort of a simpler way of grant funding. Then you get into the bigger organizations. Now, I haven't worked with them individually uh, from within, but externally, uh, the experience is that obviously the funding is much bigger. We're talking thousands, millions. Um, and the process to get that funding is a lot more complicated. You've got lots of many, many steps to go through and you often don't get feedback. And that means that whoever's applying for the funding has to spend quite a lot of time and effort in the process of applying for that funding. And their chances of, of getting that funding are quite low. Um, then you've got government systems of allocating funding. The one I had experience with was the Flood Defense Grant and Aid. What they do really well, at least in the UK, is um, they've developed systems like the five case business model, where they have synthesized the key criteria of what they think makes a project worthwhile. And uh, um, how do, they've actually developed processes of how do you develop, how do you assess the cost benefit of doing this intervention or not? And they will ask the, the grant receiver, which could be like a local government, uh, to revisit that decision at different stages in the program. Um, so that's another type of funding that I've come across. Then you've got uh, high net worth individuals, uh, and then you've obviously got corporate funding uh, and CSR. Um, and that can be corporate companies that are say social businesses that just wanna, are, are making business by doing good, or it could be the philanthropic branch of a corporate organization that has specific goals. And that, for example, is like really big and so you've got all these different types of funding streams that I suppose nonprofits can try to tap into. Um, the the difficult the impact the difficulty with the nonprofits is the resources are tight, right? Uh, in, in in the nonprofit sector because typically historically the nonprofit sector isn't allowed to carry over many reserves. So whereas a company has say um, a cash pot that it sits on and it carries over year on year. Nonprofits can do that, but there's legal restrictions involved in it. And they're, in many cases, especially if they're small and new, less comfortable doing that because it's harder to get that money and they need to make sure they're using it properly and complying with all the taxes. 
they have less reserves. They also have uh, less um, abundance, unfortunately, in uh, the way they, I suppose, in, in the money they have access to for, um, for staff, for salaries, for innovation, for thinking. And so because resources are tight, um, the way they spend their time is extremely important. And therefore, when I hear organizations tell me, you know what, we're spending 80% of our time writing grant proposals. And I ask them, okay, but what did you learn from them? And they say, oh, we didn't get feedback. Or I say, oh, um, how, what's your grant proposal success rate? Speaking to an organization today, this morning, they applied for uh, 24 grant grants in a year and they only get two. And they spend 80% of their time writing grants. That time is time taken away from them doing the work that they have to do. Yep. So when, when these financial rules of how we decide, whoever it is that decides that any part of the system, uh, what deserves funding and what not, I think it's important that we bear in mind what are the consequences of these rules on the person applying? And is there anything we can do in our fund allocation processes to make it easier and make it more of a learning experience and of a positive experience as opposed to just a resource drain, which is what it is at the moment. Now, as far as, uh, as, far as your engineering background, I'm just curious, uh, you've had a lot of uh, years in engineering. I think it was eight. It was eight. <laughs> I actually don't uh, know. <laughs> um, are there any lessons that you learned in engineering and uh, that you were able to then apply to the MPO, the nonprofit world? Yes, absolutely, so many. Um, also because um, civil engineering in particular is has to do with everything, everything, it has to do with everything that's around cities. So basically anything in a city that's uh, a man-made structure or system or service is somewhat related to civil engineering. and. Most of the of the social challenges that um, nonprofits and the charity sector face are in cities or in, in in rural environments. We still have some element of social construct. So there's lots of similarities. I think one and lots of lessons learned. The biggest one is to do with collaboration uh, and collaboration across stakeholder groups and across disciplines. So, for example, in civil engineering. Um, as a, as, a, as a water engineer, um, I had to say get um, a flood risk project approved. And to design that flood risk project, which might've just been a wall, say 500 meter wall, uh, that protects a group, of, a group of houses in the UK from flooding. Um, the number of disciplines that I had to interact with to get to a high quality design that would get government funding and approval was, was very many. I had to look at the environmental species and the, uh, the protected species and the flora and fauna in the area, and the specialists and the biologists, and the ecologists in the area. I had to look at people that are experts in grounds. Uh, I had to look at the highways team and the traffic management authorities. I had to speak to the local council uh, and the local community groups. And if there was communities that were doing activities in that area, I had to liaise with them. I had to speak to the local politicians. I had to um, cover many, many different areas that have to do with the project and make sure that all those areas and all those stakeholders understood as much as they needed to understand from my work so that they could give it their stamp of approval and their support. 
And so in uh, the nonprofit sector, you get very similar situations arising because um, if you're working, no, no discipline is sort of isolated. So if you're working in, uh, say, a, a slum in Mumbai, Mumbai, uh, and you're working on schools, well, whether or not the children are going to attend school also depends on how the family gets its water. And how the family gets its water probably depends on politics in the in the community and infrastructure. And so there's always there's always many different stakeholders that come from different disciplines. And what I've seen happen in both spaces is that if you don't get the stakeholders approval, you don't bring them on board, then you end up wasting a lot of money because we end up uh, financing projects or programs that, for one reason or another, are not used, are not accepted, are not. Uh, basically the, their impact potential is not actualized. So how to collaborate and communicate across stakeholder groups, how to decide what information is relevant to share to who and how, what level of technical detail to give to who and what tone and really just around building trust and building good relationships. That's something I learned in engineering and brought over to the nonprofit sector. And I suppose linked to that is also how you, um, how we structure relationships from the start contractually. Uh, the construction sector is a very um, adversarial sector historically. Uh, you have the person building the project and the person designing the project, and typically uh, we don't get along. <laughs> and uh, there's a, there's lots of things, there's lots of um, disagreements on, oh, you made this change, this change happens, how much did it cost? The client saying, I'm not gonna pay for that. Um, so there's a lot of uh, complications around dealing with change, dealing with unexpectedness in civil engineering. And the civil engineering sector found a way of tackling that through a contract and a set of terms of agreements called uh, the new engineering contract. And a lot of the principles of that are what I'm trying to bring over to the nonprofit sector because the nonprofit sector also has terms of reference, terms of agreements, basically set out at the start of every uh, collaboration, how much money the funder is gonna give and in exchange, how much impact is gonna be created and how that impact is gonna be monitored and all of that. Yeah. Let's hear some success stories uh, from projects that you've undertaken the past few couple of years. What's your favorite project? Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, I love, I love everyone that I've worked with. Uh, and I suppose that's one of the advantages of, of being an entrepreneur is that I get to choose who I work with. Uh, but I, I'm, right. not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give names, but let, let me give you a few examples. Yeah. Uh, there is one organization I worked with. Um, they, they work in uh, data and in particular ESG data. And when I met them, um, they, uh, they confided in me that sometimes it, it was a bit tricky for them to get funders to fund their long-term aspirations. Now, uh, what, they, what they do as an organization is they gather, they crowdsource ESG data from around the world. They're actually one of the biggest platforms to do that. Mm -hmm. um, they're called Wikirate. Uh, so um, you can Google them, they are brilliant. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that um, we worked on together uh, was looking at, okay, how do you, they were spending a lot of time in the technicality of the work. And when you're doing something that technical with um, lots of like UXO experiences, lots of tech language to do with the platform, storage of the platform online, 
um, it can be very hard for somebody external to understand it. And so we work together, but, but their product is brilliant. They are one of the only people in the world doing it. Um, and they weren't really reaping the benefits of that or celebrating that, which was limiting their potential. And so we worked together with, um, with the head of their organization over a number of months and seeing the, the transformation uh, that they achieved in a few months was amazing. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but from having like a few grant applications a year, they uh, ended up having like tens, tens and tens of conversations with funders every month. Uh, they got awarded a prize that uh, was testimony to them being able to communicate what they're doing finally. Uh, they were able to expand their team uh, and they're on their way to, uh, to, to promoting and sharing and getting involved in so many other projects. So I suppose what really satisfies me and makes me happy is when I see potential in an organization and I see that there's something blocking them and that they're so close to, to, to reaping the benefits of all their hard work and it reaching so many more people. And there's just these few little barriers to do with the practicalities of their impact and their fundraising that are standing in the way. And I come in and I help them unlock them and I see them unlock it. Uh, it's a great honor and pleasure to sort of see that happen. In other cases, it's been, mm -hmm. uh, do, do you want more examples or, or should we leave it no, as that? Uh, before we get to another example, um, I was just curious, what are the elements that uh, make the difference between success and failure? Um, I don't know if there's gonna be all of them, but these are the, the few that come to mind now. Um, the first one is confidence mm -hmm. and it's confidence underpinned by a deep knowledge of your work. Um, I, th I think what happens is, I don't know if it's happened to you or to anybody listening, but when you, when you work in a field for a very long period of time, uh, you become such a, an expert in it that there's a lot of knowledge there that all of a sudden you take for granted. And so when you try to explain it to somebody else, it's very, it's very common to skip the steps right. or, to, or to think, oh, this information that I've got isn't really relevant. I'm not going to share it. Yeah. For example, I remember speaking to um, a brilliant nonprofit leader in India. And um, he was telling me about how um, in, in a village somewhere, um, there was a, a community that actually, uh, they used a plant, a specific plant to disinfect their hands after going to the bathroom. And you could say that that's, an, that's innovation, right? You're using a local resource to maintain hygiene. Mm -hmm. uh, but they never thought to share that with anybody because to them, it was like just the way they do things. Whereas somebody external would look at it and be like, oh, wow, actually that's, that's innovative. Maybe instead of uh, spending lots of money on toilets or on soap, we can leverage this local plant instead. And so I think being able to see your work through somebody else's eyes and confidently explain it so that they can understand it. And I think it's just having that, having that confidence, having that deep understanding of your work, how everything stitches together, which makes you unshakably confident that when you're talking about it and you're standing by it, um, it becomes magnetic. And, and I think the second point is how you set up conversations with uh, the people that you're asking to engage with your work. Uh, a lot of a lot of what I see happens, and it's um, it's it's 
frustrating because it's not reality is that sometimes nonprofits fall into this helplessness role where they become the sort of the, the dependence on this funding. And there is a dependence there, but nonprofits are far from helpless. They're resilient. They have so much knowledge they're sitting on. And so I think it's important that nonprofits um, stand by uh, their, and set boundaries and are very clear about the type of funder they want to pursue, the, the type of relationship they're willing to accept and are not willing to accept, and set in their heads before they start a conversation with funders a clear definition of how they want to be treated. Uh, and doing that from the very beginning of the relationship is very important, I think. An, an example is the dynamics of how the initial conversation happens. You speak to nonprofits, uh, many nonprofits will tell you they'll do tons of research before an initial call with a funder. Now, funders will do a little bit of research too, but my gut, my bet is the balance is it should be skewed. And so instead it should be equal. Both people are coming together uh, to share their resources. Funders share their networks, their money, some of their knowledge and skills. Nonprofits share their, their networks, <laughs> their knowledge of the problem, the trust that they have, their infrastructure. And it's an, it should be an equal relationship from the start. So I think framing that relationship as equal from the start is the second most important thing. And the last point I would add is putting that into practice. So building that confidence, building that impact narrative and uh, setting up those relationships with funders in a balanced way from the beginning. It obviously needs to be embedded somehow within the limited resources that nonprofits yeah. already have alongside operation and everything else. And what we wanna do is we wanna embed it in a way that's streamlined, that's intentional, that's uh, effective. It doesn't have to become like a task in itself. So it's about doing what you're already doing smarter so that you embed these principles as opposed to making a meal out of it and making that the main purpose of your work, if that makes sense. So those three, I think I would, I would pick the top three. Okay. Um, it's interesting, but when you think about philanthropy, you feel that uh, a donor, the philanthropist should uh, focus on the the, the juice, I guess, of the, of the project, the, the essence of the project, and base their assessment as to whether they're going to donate or not on uh, on that. But then there's uh, uh, there's all this background uh, that most of us don't know about, I guess. Uh, you know, the preparation. It's a, there's a lot of competitiveness, I guess, in the field. Um, do you feel that could, that that's a positive thing or or negative? Uh, the fact that a nonprofit has to actually go through so much preparation, so much training, essentially, uh, for for them to be able to get the money that they need to exist. Um, why is the essence of the project not enough? So I, I think essence of the project is enough. It's it's we made it harder for funders and nonprofits to communicate and to understand what that is. So let, let me try to clarify what that. Um, the, when I, I think when a, when a nonprofit starts off, they, uh, I, found, I, I often hear these stories of, of founding, founders of nonprofits. It starts off with a very clear mission. Usually there's like an experience, maybe a personal experience. They've, they've had something, they've, they've come across a problem and an experience and they've decided, you know what? I'm going to dedicate my life to this. 
And it's very clear at the start. What makes it complicated is that over time, nonprofits tend to, you start doing more activities, you trial and error some things. Typically, the range of activities that an organization does changes. Um, but what makes it hard is that then the pressure comes sometimes from funders to say, you know what, I only have boxes for schools and sanitation and women's rights. And so the nonprofit has a very difficult task because it has to figure out, okay, is any of what, what I do relevant enough to these boxes for me to fit into that box comfortably? Or do I need to sort of chameleon, camouflage, force myself into looking like something that I'm not in order to get the funding? So I think it's more from the nonprofit side, it's absolutely, I mean, all organizations have to learn, right? And I think competition is absolutely good in the sense that healthy competition is good. Having to prove yourself to others, having to uh, face what others are doing and be compared with the reality that some others might be doing it better or worse than you. I think that's all healthy learning. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that away. I think where it becomes unhealthy is where um, nonprofits somehow gets this, get this message that they believe that they need to be something that they're not in order to get funding. I think that belief is, is unhelpful because actually, if you look at it, um, the boxes are what destroy the uniqueness of nonprofits. Um, for example, I, I went to a conference in India once, I went to a few of them. But um, when you go to some of these nonprofit conferences, the way nonprofits pitch themselves is they all say they all take the boxes. So you go mm -hmm. to the conference and you see everybody, all the stands, and they all say, we're doing water and sanitation, we're doing livelihoods, we're doing education, we're doing all these things. So when yeah. you look at them, it also makes it hard for the funder to understand what they're actually doing because yeah. they all look the same. When you speak to them, now that's when the magic comes out because then they'll tell you, you know what? We are working on water in indigenous communities. We're coming at it from this very specific angle and that's what we love to do. So the question arises, well, why don't you just say that? Right, because so the, so the box boxes, the boxes though are essentially self-imposed boxes. It's what the nonprofits feel would bring uh, a response from, from a funder. It's not necessarily what the funders are expecting. I think it's a bit of both. Because also, if you look at it from the funder's perspective, um, there's an infinite number of variations and possibilities and cross-sections of missions, right, that nonprofits could have. But obviously, right. the funders have to come up with a way of managing their own expectations and their own priorities. So I think it's normal for the funders to want to set their own strategies also around what they're interested in. Because let's face it, I think one of the things we, we don't give the funders credit for is we also don't give funders just the way we don't give nonprofits the space to shine in their unique way. We also don't give funders the space to just fund based on what they want. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be so rationalized that sort of, I imagine even for funders, it must be a little tricky because they feel this heavy responsibility with their money of, oh, we have to give it to the right place. We have to rational, we have to control where it goes. We have to reduce the risk of it being misused. And I think that takes away a little bit from the joy of philanthropy because philanthropy starts from a place of giving, right? And of joy and of trust. Right. And, and instead, in many cases, it then becomes so complicated that it becomes so rationalized that 
and complicated. So big funders that make decisions about millions mm -hmm. in seconds based on a five slide presentation. So I don't think, I don't think the budget is necessarily the, the threshold. Um, it's, maybe it's the temperament of the funder. Um. Yeah, maybe it's a temperament. I think it's also, I think that's also have to do with the size of the organization. But if you think about it, if you're an individual or a family foundation, you just have to get the key stakeholders in your family to agree. Whereas if you're a big organization, like the UN say, and mm -hmm. all the UN funding bodies, you've got so many different departments and processes because you've had to develop them because of your sheer size. Right. But maintaining that flexibility becomes a little bit tricky because you've had yeah. to, you've, even simply you've had, you probably have had to create a department for food and agriculture, a department for climate. It's been what happens when the perfect project comes along that does both. Those two departments need to speak to each other, and that's a complication. And they need to then decide how to allocate the funding. So, I think size, funding, the size of organization definitely plays a role. But it's also, I think, it's also there's also another thing which we haven't talked about yet, which I think is very important, which is, do we respect the people that we're funding and their knowledge or not? Or do, do we think that we know better? Just like uh, nonprofits have their challenges that they're dealing with. I think one of the challenges that funders have to grapple with is the fact that in many cases, uh, we, we fund, I mean, why, why do you fund something? Or why do I give away to charity? I, I do it because I want to be a part of somebody else's mission. I want to find meaning. I, I get a feel good factor from giving money away. And I think that sometimes we take that feel, fact, feel good factor a bit too far and funders can end up playing the part of the sort of savior, the catalyst. I see. Um, I had a great conversation with um, Anil Gupta a while ago. And one of the things that he was challenging was this role of catalyst. And he was saying, you know, funders are not catalysts, they're co-creators they contribute one of the many resources. A catalyst is something that uh, creates a reaction without changing itself. Right. But the point is, um, if, if you're trying to, if you think you have all the answers as a funder and you're just imposing and saving, coming in and saving the day with all the answers and you're expecting to come away from that project without any of your goals changed, without any of your priorities changed, with everything having gone exactly to plan, then you could argue that you're not really fully participating. Yeah. Because actually, if, if, you, if you look at the reality, the reality is things change. The reality is nobody has all the answers. Neither the funders nor the nonprofits. That's the beauty of it. You come together and you co-create. But if one side of the puzzle thinks that their views, their knowledge uh, are worth more, or mm -hmm. that they deserve more to control risk, or that they deserve more to evaluate the impact. I mean, why should the nonprofit also not be able to evaluate, want to evaluate the impact? And I think it, it boils down to trust and to our ability to keep our egos in check, understand our own needs, meet our own needs, uh, and set up relationships honestly that, that actually help us work together towards a common goal without trying to squish the other. Yeah. Was there an occasion where you uh, 
where you dealt with a, an insurmountable problem? I think the most insurmountable problem is when, if an organization loses hope. Um, like, and it basically just accepts the status quo. Yeah. Um, I, tend, I tend not to work with those organizations because obviously I, I, I tend to cherry pick organizations that have shown me that they want to change. I don't, I don't force my services on anybody. So right. I only end up working with organizations that have said, you know what, I, I'm hungry to change. I do not find this acceptable. I want to make right. more funding. I want to have a bigger impact. But a lot of organizations I speak to have sometimes uh, just accepted the fact that there is, things are gonna be the way they are and they have to be the way they are and nothing's gonna change. And I think that's one of the most dangerous beliefs because uh, you gotta have hope. And right. there are lots of funders out there that are changing and lots yeah. of nonprofits that are changing. So change is possible if you want it to be possible. But if you start off from the assumption that no, it's not gonna work out, well then, then, then yeah, it's not gonna work out. There was a quote, I can't remember who it was, that says, whether you think you can do it or you think you can't, either way you're right. Right, that's true. So I've heard it several times, right? Um, do you feel that there's an inherent issue, inherent, pro inherent problem with uh, a, a model, a business model of a nonprofit organization that relies 100% relies on funding as opposed to yes, absolutely. revenue? Yes, absolutely. Like I personally, I think all nonprofits should aim as soon as they've covered their costs and become um, a bit more confident in the predictability of their funding. And they're sort of in a, in a comfortable place financially and they can plan ahead a little bit. I think that's the perfect time to start thinking of what income streams can we create. One thing that I think makes it really tricky for nonprofits is that there's legislation around uh -huh. it. So for example, in places like India, um, there's legislation that says you cannot make more than X percent of your budget from this act from sort of fee paying activities. Uh -huh. And if so, you cannot carry over more than this of it. So I think we need to be wary of the fact that um, the, the, the legislation and the taxation rules of nonprofits are aimed at making sure that they are not nonprofits, <laughs> that, they, that they don't accumulate profit. I think the common uh -huh. misunderstanding is that um, my understanding of it is nonprofits are not allowed to allocate profits in the sense that they're not allowed to distribute dividends mm -hmm. to shareholders. Effectively, they're not allowed to distribute profit to shareholders. What they are allowed to do is they are allowed to accumulate funding and then spend it back on their organization's mission. Mm -hmm. Where it gets a little bit tricky is, is that funding restricted or not? Because the funding isn't if you buy a service, for example, mm -hmm. from a consulting organization, you pay them for that, for that, for that service. Right. And then the consulting organization has full freedom to decide how to spend that money. It's unrestricted. Right. But for nonprofits, that's not the case. Because of the way the relationship between the funder and the nonprofit is set up, because of that contractual deal, because of those rules, because of that, that desire to control and to manage the impact, most of the funding nonprofits get at the moment, unfortunately, is restricted, which so, means they get the money, but they can't spend it on whatever they want. Right. So you feel that there's no value added by uh, 
you know, funders restricting their funds and setting rules and setting guidelines as far as how their funds should be spent. There's no value in that. I mean, I think, I think that it's, again, it's not black or white, but I think that in some cases it, it can be, I think if in doubt, make it unrestricted. That would be my rule. What? Um, if, if what? Oh, if, I, in doubt, I, I, if in doubt, make it unrestricted. Because unrestricted is basically saying, I trust you as an organization that I'm giving charity to, to know right. how best to spend this money. And restricted just causes complications. Right. But I understand how in some cases that might not be possible. Uh, in terms of the funding streams and the income generation side of it, there's huge opportunities. And there is lots of examples from different sectors. For example, there's eye care companies that um, do like part subsidized models. So they'll have like a hospital, which is a fee paying hospital where they serve private clients at higher rates. And then they have a, a more charity branch of the hospital where they provide the same services at subsidized rates. And right. the private branch subsidizes the, um, the charity branch. So that's one way to do it is to have separate entities. Right. Um, in other cases, I've seen um, organizations that work, say, with communities, um, help leverage and encourage the communities and the entrepreneurship of the communities in creating products that they can then sell. So it's sort of a creating a consumer branch or creating value-added products where you take raw materials and you bring them together, you create baskets, you create art, you create something that you can sell. And again, using that money to fund other activities. Um, so there's, there's an infinite number of opportunities. And I think there's no reason why um, in some sectors, at least, nonprofits can't aspire if they want to, to become social businesses. Uh, but again, I think it's it's specific to the to the geographical location, the legislation, to the specific sector, and what type of money, what type of activities they need funding for, and what type of activities they can generate income from, and how that matches consumers and funders. What goals have you set for for your organization, your own company, and yourself for the next few years? Ah, uh, okay. I love this one. Um, so for me personally is um, I'm just, I'm always learning. I'm always growing uh, like everybody in entrepreneurship knows it's a, it's a roller coaster. Uh, so I, I challenge myself to, um, to bulldoze through any mental barriers I have. Um, and I've got areas of specific learning that I'm, uh, that I'm targeting. Um, and, and I suppose my, I hold myself accountable to walking the talk in the sense that um, I want to prove through my own work also that it's possible to live a life of purpose and support yourself and your family. Um, and that it's possible to merge um, personal benefits with meaning, the two don't have to be separate. So that's for me sort of individually. Um, for the confluencers, I want to do a few things over the next few years. Uh, one is I want to publish a book. I want to collate a story, uh, a set of stories from at least a hundred nonprofits that have gone or will go through my uh, program. Uh, and I want to tell their stories of change. I want to be part of witnessing and narrating and sharing with the world uh, the magic of their work, their resilience, and how much it is possible to transform 
uh, from situations of scarcity and fundraising and difficulties with funders to situations where actually it's easy and everybody's collaborating. So I want to create a book. And then I also want to co-create with uh, funders. I'm still uh, at the start of this. I'm uh, inviting a bunch of different funders from around the world. If you're listening to this and it sounds interesting, please reach out. Uh, but um, I want to co-create a new uh, standard of uh, conduct for philanthropy. And this is not something that I can do obviously alone. Um, I really, I mean it when I say co-create, um, but I want to set a new standard for these relationships between uh, philanthropists and grant makers and maybe even create a contract to go with it, uh, to make it easy for organizations to, to work in environments of trust, to co-create, to align their interests and to basically spend less money and effort uh, trying to control and more money and effort driving change. Maybe there needs to be a training program for funders. <laughs> yes, I'm working on that. A mastermind it's called, not a training program. I've got a training program for nonprofits, but I've got a mastermind for funders. Uh, so yeah. Do, they, uh, do a lot of them go through programs like that? Um, do they, do they, or do they feel that, well, you know, I'm, I'm the funder, so, so I really don't need to know anything about conduct, you know, I can just, I can just proceed. I'm paying my, I'm giving my money after all. So. That's a very good question. Actually. I don't know. Ask me again in six months when I've asked more, more funders, <laughs> what they think of it. Um, right. Yeah. I, I would imagine that all leaders of, of organizations that are interested in growth uh, would, would, uh, would be open to continuing their learning journey and uh, recognizing areas of difficulty and challenges and working on them. But um, yeah, I would assume that uh, lots of foundations would hire people who were formerly nonprofit uh, uh, on on the on the boards of nonprofits and who uh, were executives at uh, nonprofits, so they would know uh, what it takes and what's required, so they would understand uh, all that. But I guess not. I think there's actually. Um, I think it doesn't happen enough. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a few initiatives that come across that are encouraging that. And I definitely support that. I think that's a great idea. You want to cross-pollinate the two perspectives so that they, un they understand each other better. Yeah. Great. And what is your own image of yourself right now? My own image of myself right now. Okay. Um, I am a, uh, a definitely an oddball. Uh, I like to ruffle the waters. Uh, I'm owning my own voice and authenticity, I think, for the first time in a very long time, or ever maybe. Um, I am always learning uh, and trying to accept my vulnerabilities and my, uh, accept myself and my imperfection. Uh, and that's been a, an interesting one for me. And I just have a lot of energy and ideas and hope that I just, I wanna share. So I, I feel, I'm feeling quite strong, quite positive, quite vulnerable, very feminine, having become a mom over the past six months. Uh, and yeah, just open, I suppose, positive. Yeah, open energy. Thank you. <laughs>